All right, thank you. Uh, we also have our business cards back there, but we didn't get them until about uh, halfway down. So if you want to grab our business cards, they're there as well. So I've organized the session a little bit like a radio show. One thing that's really interesting is uh, sound is touch from a distance. I'm sure we all remember that line. But have you ever noticed how powerful the shh is in terms of like affecting people's behavior? Um, I've organized a session a little bit like a radio show, uh, kind of like a call-in radio show. I'll have different radio personalities and producers from around the country up at various points. You'll hear uh, sound bites, and I'll be taking calls through the hour. The number is, well, you get the idea. We're going to have questions throughout. I'm going to be going into the audience to kind of get people's reactions. Um, shout out a question if you have one, and I'll make sure to mic you. Remember that uh, this is being recorded, so I want to make sure to get you on mic. So first, and most importantly, I wanted to introduce my public radio partner, the only person besides my wife and my mom that I've ever opened a bank account with, Alicia Zuckerman. Hi. Alicia and I, Alicia and I started Under the Sun together. As you just heard Dan say, I'm Alicia Zuckerman, and my story uh, into radio is that I became a journalist because of sound. I always loved sound. I always loved music. I have. Uh, a background as an amateur singer and a very, very bad saxophonist, but I had a lot of fun playing saxophone in those days. Um, I, uh, my first job in radio was as a weekly features reporter for On the Media, um, and after that I became the arts and culture reporter for WNYC and the classical music and dance reporter for New York Magazine. Um, so I tried to keep my interest in the arts, obviously, in my journalistic career as well. I came here um, to my, actually here, I came to Miami three and a half years ago. And when I came to Miami, I um, had some mutual, Dan and I had some mutual friends down there. We didn't know each other yet. We were introduced at a gathering. And at that gathering, somebody said, um, oh, this is Dan Gretsch, the other radio guy. <laughs> so Miami at that time, three years ago, was not the hotbed of public radio that it is today. Um, no. <laughs> Uh, we, it is, it, we've, we've attempted to grow a community, and I think you know, that's what we've been trying to do for the last few years, um, to do the kind of radio that we want to do, um, involved bringing a couple, training a couple people, bringing a couple more people down, and that, that's what we've done. So yeah. that's the beginning of our story. And as you all know, I left Marketplace, my dream job, uh, a national show, to join and work at the local station. Um, and since making that transition, I've picked up a bunch of tips, <clears throat> tips and principles that I'm going to share with you today, and I'm calling them, for lack of a better word, habits. Now, I don't want to pretend that the seven habits I'm going to pre present to you today are some kind of definitive list. There's a lot I left out and even more stuff I have yet to learn. Uh, but this I will say, I promise you that the very first habit I'm going to share with you is far and away the most important thing I'm going to say today. So those of you who I see sort of in the back of the room kind of edging towards the door, I'd stick around for habit one, then you can move on to Scott Carrier. <laughs> habit one, place is not a place. So first a bit of background about that. A few years ago, PRPD, which is the um, public radio program directors, commissioned a study asking listeners what they value in public radio. So what do you think? You know, throw out some ideas. What do you think some of those values were? Raise your hand. Anyone want to give it a shot? Yes. Uh, 
I've been to the PRPD. Do <laughs> um, you have some uh, inside knowledge? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, that listeners, at least in, to public radio, sense of place is in, incredibly important. Just, you know, even as much if it's just, you know, we're here live in Chicago. Um, All right, so pretend we didn't hear that. What else? <laughs> <laughs> I saw a hand over here. I, you can. What else do local listeners value and look for? Perceived impartiality. Impartiality. What else? Local voices, their own voice. Absolutely, local voices. Let's have one more, one more, somebody, somebody. Yes. Sound effects? And sound effects. <laughs> Spoken like an insider. <laughs> okay, um, so some of the key findings in the sense of place report were that public radio listeners feel a strong sense of place. They, they, the study found that sense of place differs in each market, which makes sense. Public radio listeners value a station that covers their place with depth, intelligence, and a wider perspective, just as NPR covers the nation and the world. The actual performance of local news and information programming too often fails to deliver on its promise. So there was some frustration in uh, the listening experience there. And if producers working um, at local stations more clearly understood the sense of place in the minds of their listeners, they could sharpen their editorial judgment. And that understanding would help producers frame their stories beyond the merely local. Um, so the first finding is a big one. It's that sense of place, and it's so important that that's what PRPD named that 84-page study. And it's also what Dan and I really tried to keep in mind when we were starting Under the Sun. And we should tell you, um, our tagline on Under the Sun is we're telling the stories of South Florida. And what we do, we do a series of segments that run during Morning Edition and All Things Considered, um, and, and the takeaway which we air um, in South Florida. They are uh, documentary-style feature stories, original fiction, personal essays, and audio postcards. Am I missing anything? No. All right. And when we got started we, to produce our first pilot episode, um, it took us almost a year. Um, and we were so proud of this pilot episode, this hour of radio that we had created. I, I remember telling friends, I mean, it nearly put me in the grave, as all of you guys know, uh, radio is a kill, uh, killer to produce. So at the end of that year, I remember saying to someone that uh, when they bury me, I want the CD of the first episode clutching in my hands. <laughs> and we were really proud of it, and we sent it around, right? We sent it to some of our radio mentors, and one of them is Jim Russell. He created Marketplace and Week in America, and he calls himself the program doctor. And we could not wait to hear what he had to say about Under the Sun. Excellent produced sound and first-rate interviews with real characters, excellent writing and narration. That was the good part. <laughs> but the show seems lacking as a program. The stories have nothing to do with each other, and the show's reason for being is unclear. The only uniting characteristic is that all of these people live in Florida. And that's just not enough of a mission statement. That's why when I develop a show, I insist on writing a mission and really enunciating the vision, Bible, and other aspects. In other words, you have at best a collection of good writing, good stories, good craft, and a good cast, but these elements don't all gel into a single show. I ought to know this was the main problem with the late, great Weekend America. So for those of you who weren't actually keeping track, that was seven seconds of good and 42 of bad. 
It's pretty harsh, right? Um, so just to reiterate, Jim told us the only uniting characteristic is that all these people live in Florida, which we, I guess, thought was enough. But that's what people want. That's, I mean, we thought, you know, we're doing really interesting stories about people who live in Florida. That place is right there in this title of the study. But so one of the things that we want to tell you today is that place is not actually a place. It's not that literal. It's not geography. If we'd read the study more carefully, amid all of the other stuff that we were doing and putting together this pilot, um, we would have noticed that finding. This finding. So it says, the dimensions of each place are mental, and the maps in the minds of public radio listeners do not match political geography. We found that dimensions of environment, history, and culture are more important than standard boundaries like city, county, and state. And so, I found that bit particularly interesting, environment, history, and culture. Yeah, place is not a setting for a radio story. It's about shared experience. It's a set of themes that define life in a region and among a people. So what we're trying to do, what I stay with under the sun, what we're trying to do is evoke the experience of living in South Florida. We want listeners to come away from our stories knowing something about the place where we live that they didn't know before, or maybe something that they remembered but forgot, or something that just resonates with them, like, yeah, that's my experience too. You know, but place is not a place, I recognize, is, is a really abstract kind of idea. And so what I'm hoping to do now is give you a very concrete example of the real everyday implications that this idea of place being about a set of themes can have um, on your reporting. So I'm going to tell you this story. It was brought to us by a very talented Miami Herald reporter named Robert Samuels. So that's a young married couple. They moved, that what, used to be a young married couple. <laughs> <laughs> they moved to Miami in the 50s. They had a baby girl, who you can see in the, uh, in the framed portrait, and at age two she died of pneumonia. The family buried her in a local cemetery, but the mom was so distraught, uh, they moved from Miami. A few years later, the dad returned to visit his daughter's grave. And he looks, and he looks, and for the life of him, he cannot find it. Fast forward half a century. The couple now lives in North Carolina. They're in their 70s, and they live with this crippling guilt. They lost their baby daughter twice. Their son-in-law hears the story, begins to make calls, and finds the cemetery where the daughter is buried. The cemetery manager sends the family a photo of the gravesite. So this is an incredibly powerful story about love and loss, about the bond between a parent and a child, about how we mourn death. But what in the world does the story have to do with South Florida when all of the present action takes place in North Carolina? So I'm going to read, from you, uh, read to you from an early draft of how Robert wrote the scene where the father searches for the grave. Reuben saw a new Miami. There was an interstate now. Cow fields had been overtaken by highways and housing. He drove the road he believes he remembered to what he believes was the cemetery. He walked the path he believed would lead to the bronze marker, Melissa's bronze marker, but it wasn't there. He walked past graves and graves and graves until the sun set. He found nothing. 
So Dan and I dual edit every story that we do. One of us is the primary editor and the other one is the secondary editor. And Dan was the primary editor on this one and handed the script over to me. And I took a look and said, there were a few lines in there about Miami, uh, the idea of Miami as a changing landscape. But it, was, it, it just wasn't there yet. That idea of what this story meant to life in South Florida, it wasn't there. It was just kind of stuck in. Um, so basically, I, I went back to Dan and I said, look, that idea needs to be there in a more palpable way. I'm not really sure how. There were some promising ideas in the, in the pitch, actually, that weren't in the script itself. Um, and I said, go back, take a look at the pitch, uh, see if you can pull some of that out and make it a more palpable theme, make the idea of life in South Florida a more palpable theme in this story. And, you know, Jim Russell's critique was also still ringing in my ears. So. Robert and I puzzled over this for a long time. You know, Alicia's critique was dead on. Um, place was just a setting in this piece. Uh, I asked Robert tons of questions. Robert searched through his notes. He re-interviewed people. And we just weren't being able, able to find it. And then, suddenly, clear as day, we had it. It was just two short sentences. 10 seconds of narration, but it made the piece. Ruben confronted what many people in South Florida face when they leave and return, shock at how quickly the landscape gets scraped clean and built anew. So we're gonna play the entire section of the piece where this 10 seconds appeared. I don't remember who took care of my children. I don't remember feeding them. I don't remember taking care of them. I must have not been a very good mother because I don't remember nothing. To preserve his wife's sanity, Reuben decided to leave the memories behind. He moved Vera and the four remaining kids to a new post in Hawaii. Fourteen years later, Reuben returned to Miami and decided to visit the baby's grave. But the city looked nothing like the one he knew. A highway slogged through his old neighborhood. Cows had been replaced by condos. His favorite jazz club had become a strip club. Reuben confronted what many people in South Florida face when they leave and return, shock at how quickly the landscape gets scraped clean and built anew. The landscape gets scraped clean and built anew. Place is not a place. It's a set of themes. That brings us to number two, mine your local themes. So what does that mean? Well, what do locals first talk about, say, when they pick you up at the airport? That's a theme. Or what's the kind of, what's the kind of stuff that makes you say, like, um, oh, that's so D.C., that's so Chicago, that's so New Orleans, um, or that's so Miami? And my personal favorite, find a poet who writes about your city and interview them. They spend all day thinking about this kind of stuff. Well, I, I, there's a quote from uh, the famous studier of myth, Joseph Campbell, that says something like, human societies depend on their local mythology to sustain them. That's not an exact quote, but that notion of, in other words, not just the kind of grand epic mythologies, but a local mythology, because uh, partly because mythology leads to a sense of the sacred, and I believe this is Florida's huge flaw. It doesn't see anything wrong with constantly scraping flat the landscape and rebuilding it. It's never going to say this version is sacred, this version is necessary and needs to be preserved. Until we can make that leap, then I think we're going to keep repeating the same error. That's MacArthur Genius Grant winner Campbell McGrath, who teaches poetry in Miami. And yes, we stole the verb scraped from him. More on that later. 
So it's really not rocket science uh, to figure out your themes. Uh, I'd like you guys to take a second now, if you will, and write down what you think are your city's themes. Take a second and jot some down. Would one of you guys like to share one of the things you wrote down? I'm from uh, Richmond, Virginia, so the thing that emerges, first of all, is the notion of the lost cause, the Confederacy, and racism, and, and the whole white and black tension, which is very palpable there. That's great. The lost cause. That's a fantastic theme. I'm from Seattle, and I said rain. You know, I really like that one. I mean, lost cause is high-minded and, and big, a big thought, but rain is so ever-present. It is a physical... I'm from Seattle, too, and I wrote down weather. <laughs> exactly. In Miami, it's hurricanes. Can I see another hand? More on that later. I'm from San Francisco, and I would say pursuit of freedom, of creativity in almost any field. <laughs> That's fantastic. Did I see another hand over here? More hands? <laughs> Work in the back of the room first. I live in a town just outside Boston. It's called Medford, Massachusetts, and my theme would be I went to high school here and never left. <laughs> Very nice. We have somebody up here. Hi, I'm Ishmael. I'm from Anchorage, Alaska. I'd say a theme is isolation. You feel far away from the rest of the world in Anchorage. I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark, and our theme would be illegal immigrants from Poland. I'm from Philadelphia, and I'd say uh, Liberty, History, and Underground Railroad. Fantastic. I have more a question about these themes, because when I was going through these in my head, I was thinking, some of these might just be stereotypes, and what's the difference? And as reporters, shouldn't we be trying to surprise people against or go against the stereotypes? I know they're different, but I'm trying to work out in my mind what differences. That, I think that actually speaks really well to a piece of fiction that we recently aired called They Always Leave. We first got this uh, piece of fiction, I took a look at it, and the idea is that basically all of the, it's a, it's a story about dating, it's on our website which is on our business cards which you can get back there, but um, the idea is basically that all the interesting people leave Miami, right? <laughs> so I get this and I take a look at it and I'm like, it makes me really uncomfortable. It's really kind of a downer. Like, do we want to air this thing? And um, we did. We aired it. Uh, we aired it last week. And the response was really unbelievable. Um, I, I mean, my, in my initial instinct was like, this is a little bit cliche. I'm not sure we should go with this, you know? Um, so many people wrote in and said, this is my experience, or we have to find each other. The interesting people have to find each other. The like-minded people have to find each other. Miami's pretty spread out in the way that some of these other cities, especially cities that have better public transportation, um, are not. And so um, I was amazed by what that piece of fiction that we aired told us about some of the themes in our city. First of all, transience is a really big one. A lot of people are always coming and going. Um, but that was, so that was, that was, I thought, a really interesting um, way of looking at themes that actually didn't seem all that surprising, but resonated with people in a very, very deep way. And I just wanted to point out, and we'll get to this in a second, this word right here, the word mine, uh, I chose it very specifically and for a, a reason that will address your point in a, in a minute or two. So at Under the Sun, ever since we figured out that place is actually a set of themes, we've 
pretty unapologetically hit those themes in just about every piece that we do. In today's show, we're looking at South Florida as the end of the line. South Florida as the end of the line. The actual end of the line in Florida is Key West, Miami Beach was the end of the line for serial killer Andrew Cunanan. It was the end of the line for the Miami Orange Bowl. The end of the line. 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 Nice work, Kenny. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Kenny Malone, our producer, one of our producers. Say hi to Kenny, everybody. Yes, who had a very, very uh, big hand in putting together today's presentation, so thank you. Um, Anyway, if you ask the right questions, you can get your sources to hit your theme for you. Um, This is, you can hear that coming up now with author Les Standiford. He does that here in an interview about Henry Flagler building a railroad all the way down the East Coast. He began the process of developing resorts, marching steadily down the east coast of Florida, uh, built the Ponce de Leon Hotel in St. Augustine, now Flagler College, built that hotel there, realized uh, that he would need to get a railroad built uh, to get people to it, and continued that process on down uh, to Palm Beach and to Miami at every stop along the way saying, this is it, this is as far as I'm going, Uh, this is the end of the line. I swear we didn't pay him to do that. Uh, that was an awesome moment in the studio when that happened. We were just sort of I was doing so like happy. high fives in the studio, <laughs> hugging each other, tears rolling down our eyes, falling to our knees. So the best way to figure out your themes is to listen carefully. Here is a clip from Alicia and I in the studio. We have a producer and engineer in there with us. And we are recording a promo for our coverage of the impact of the earthquake in Haiti on life in South Florida. This is going to be a show about personal stories of the impact of the hurricane on people in our community. Earthquake. That happens all the time. All the time. Yep, all I the do time. it. All the time. Everybody does it. It's yeah. amazing. So I went and found a linguist at uh, Florida International University and asked her what was going on there. And she told me that when you live in a place where it's hurricane season, six months a year, hurricanes seep into your un- subconscious. So when I'm searching for a word that means huge disaster, I often say hurricane, even when I mean earthquake. After that, we began to listen more carefully. Turned out I wasn't the only one slipping up. Joining me now from Washington is Haiti's ambassador to the United States, Raymond L.C. Joseph. Thank you, sir. Thank you for inviting me. It's uh, a little more than 50 hours now since the hurricane, I mean the uh, earthquake hit. Just before the hurricane, I mean just before the earthquake, we had put 20 fishing villages into Haiti. When the hurricane, and when the earthquake hit, Comcast had donated telephones so the Haitians could call their families to check on how the recovery was and if everyone was okay. And I've repeated it over and over again. In the height of that hurricane, I mean of that uh, uh, earthquake, all of the attention was there, focused finally on Haiti. That last guy was John Favalora. He's the Archbishop of Miami. It's amazing. It really did just keep happening over and over. Part of the reason why is because hurricanes are a theme in South Florida. When you think of disaster and you live in South Florida, you think of um, hurricanes or earthquakes? Hurricanes. Um, and also, obviously, when you, before the earthquake, when you think about a disaster in Haiti, 
we all thought about hurricanes, not earthquakes. Um, another theme in South Florida that we mined was uh, zany crime, the zany crime thriller, um, that genre of fiction. Um, and so who better to ask about this than Dave Barry, a man who's made an entire career poking fun at this particular subject. I mean, I recall vividly the time that a smuggler's plane was coming over from the, the Bahamas with bales of cocaine, and they were intercepted by a, a custom service jet I'm just trying to force them down. So the, the smugglers were in the back of the plane. Just, they were like very low at this point, 100 feet off the ground. They were just throwing these bales of cocaine out. And one of them landed in a citizen's crime watch meeting in Homestead. It almost hit the chief of police. Of home. You know, that's like not even possible, but it happened. So by the way, before when you were asking about, you know, the, the problem with cliched themes, sometimes they just exist. They're, sometimes they're just real. Sometimes the cliches are real. Um, so we held a roundtable with some authors of this genre, the zany crime genre, and what did they do? They talked about traffic. I always put in a couple of scenes um, in, in the Dexter books, uh, driving on I-95 or the Palmetto Expressway, and I just describe what's there. And my editor in New York thinks, this is hilarious. Nobody's going to believe this. And I said, it, it happened. <laughs> and people from Miami say, oh, that's nothing. You should see what happened going home from work yesterday. It's just things, you know, like cars on fire and people driving by on the shoulders <laughs> shooting out the window. It's things, things that happen every day. That, by the way, is Jeff Lindsay, who created the Dexter series um, of novels, which is made into the Showtime TV show. Um, and uh, so basically, traffic, hurricanes, and crime. Identifying your themes is not rocket science. It's often just right there under your feet. And now I want to directly address your question. You'll notice I use the word mine. So in your reporting, you obviously want to dig for your local themes, but you also want to blow them up. Local stories that go against the received wisdom, against the caricatures, against the ossified ways of thinking about your city are just as much about place as those that reinforce those themes. Mining your local themes is the sort of thing a national story on the very same subject will never do. Morning Edition might air the story about the lost baby, but no NPR correspondent would ask, how is this a Miami story? So when you're pitching a story, be sure to include a line about how it touches on your city's theme. Before you do an interview, brainstorm some questions that tease out the local angle. When you write a script, state your theme. Go ahead. It sounds simple, but it works. Alicia, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Okay, so you now know your themes. How do you find your stories? One answer? Look in your backyard. This piece is by Kenny Malone, a producer at WLRN Miami Herald News and Under the Sun. Uh, and I just want to say that he was instrumental in preparing this presentation. And thank you very much, Kenny. I really appreciate it. OK. Uh, go ahead and play number 12. Emily Michaud and her husband, Walt, have two sons and a dog. Michael's eight. Ryan is 10. Their Miami Shores house can get a bit rowdy. But one night a few weeks ago, Emily was home alone and the house was unusually quiet. Dad was picking the boys up from karate. So that's when I noticed that there was this, this odd noise. In the backyard. I can't even. In the mango tree. I can't even describe it. It was a. It was alive. I knew it was alive. Emily was scared. 
So she didn't go out. I mean, we've had possums. Once the kids got home. And they make some weird noises. She sent them. And they ran back in saying, Mom, that's no possum. That's an owl. And sure enough, this little gray fuzzball was out in the tree. A tiny baby screech owl calling for its parents. Eastern screech owls use tree holes for nests. They don't add any extra nesting materials, but they're good parents. They mate for life. Dad hunts and gathers. Mom is a living food processor. The owlet in Emily's mango tree seemed to be an only child. And her boys named the little guy Bob. Oh, Bob. They call everything Bob. They found salamanders this summer, and they named all five of them Bob. They call their friends Bob. My youngest son wants to be renamed Bob. It's just, it's just Bob. Emily snapped a few photos of Bob and then threw them up on her Facebook page. And one friend said, you've got to make him a fan page. She did. And the first day, Bob had like 50 fans. But the second day, he had like 450. Bob's Facebook page was filling up with comments. I just want to touch you. I just want to hold you. And Neighbors started showing up at the house unannounced. We're here to see Bob. Didn't matter if it was dinner time. So the dishes piled up. If we were attempting to do some homework. So the boy's homework backed um, up. It was time to see Bob. She's got a big worm in her mouth. Emily decided to live stream video of Bob over the internet. And one of the first nights she actually caught a feeding on tape. There she is. Did you guys see it? People from California, New Hampshire, and Beijing were watching. The next night, Emily went back outside. She noticed the screeching wasn't coming from the mango tree anymore. And if you want to find out what, ha- find out what happens next, you'll have to go to our website. Sorry. <laughs> so Bob was literally in Emily's backyard, and Emily herself was literally in our backyard. Well, that's not literal. So Emily herself was in our backyard, the newsroom. She's a colleague at the Miami Herald. That piece, which ran locally, got picked up by All Things Considered. So when you're searching for stories, remember Bob. Rebecca Shear works for Metro Connection, one of the country's only locally produced news magazine shows. She's based in Washington, D.C., and she has a very cool point to make about backyards. The thing about D.C. is, I kind of feel like a lot of people don't think of D.C. as having backyards at all. I mean, the truth is, before I got here, I basically thought of this place as the National Mall. The National Mall and like a bunch of monuments to like dead white guys. Oh, and museums, museums. We wish Rebecca could have joined us here today. She's one of the most talented local producers and she's definitely doing what we're trying to do in Miami in DC. She did, uh, however, give us this piece of advice. And I'm so sorry I can't be there, by the way. I was at Third Coast the past five years, but this year, just wasn't in the cards, but um, anyway, the clip I'd like to play is from a series I did for WAMU. I called it the Newcomer's Guide to Washington. Since I'd just moved to DC from Alaska, I would take myths and mysteries and legends about the DC area and basically go about you know, getting at the truth. Um, here's the beginning of the first episode. I call this one J Street Traffic Circles and the Swamp That Never Was. On my way here, I walked down 16th. Heading down 16th Street. And as I walked. Crossing M. And walked L. I was reminded of something else. K Street. I've wondered since moving here. I Street? 
Where's J? People often wonder why is there no J Street in downtown Washington D.C. Bingo. I mean, you've got Pierre Charles L'Enfant, the guy who designed the city pretty much from scratch, and he set up this great grid system for quadrants, numbered streets in numerical order, lettered streets in alphabetical order. But you skip past K, and there's no J. Washingtonians have many stories to explain this. Um. Jaylessness. There was like a general or something. His name was Jay. Someone was some sort of traitor when they were naming the yes. Jay streets, and his name began with a J. Right. And apparently, like the font didn't like him or something like that. So therefore, there was no J in the street system. Yeah, I think that was the story that we were told. But run that story by Carolyn Crouch. No, sorry doesn't work. Here's the deal. L'Enfant created his plan for the city in 1791, so everything was written by hand. And in that day, how you would write the letter I and how you'd write the letter J were very similar. The worry was, you put those streets next to each other on a handwritten map, and it could be very confusing to people. They won't know which is which. So J Street got the boot. Are any of you guys new to the city where you now work in? Raise your hands high. Do any of you guys feel like carpetbaggers, like you've no idea what you're saying when you're on air? I see some nods. You know, you are in the best position right now to mine your local themes, to figure out what your stories are, to turn, in a term that uh, my radio mentor, Amy O'Leary, used, the jujitsu of radio, to turn a weakness into a strength. You know, um, Rebecca came to D.C., knew she didn't know what she was talking about, and that gave her license to ask all the dumb questions that nobody had thought to ask. So use this opportunity, this window of time where you're not a local yet, and use that to make great local radio. On Under the Sun, we created a really fun segment that uh, initially was created to get listeners on the air, but also ended up being a beautiful way to kind of mine some of these local themes. It's called What's Up with South Florida? So people will call or write in with these crazy questions about weird stuff that they notice in South Florida, and then we take a poll of listeners and report on the one that they choose for us. In one segment, they wanted to know, what is up with this photo? English, spelled with an I, gratis in Spanish, neither English nor Spanish. What is up with English gratis? This is a segment that Kenny Malone did. It's Wednesday when I get the call. Malone. Yes, hello. This is Tomas Lowy, and I'm from Miami Beach. I don't know who took the picture, but it shows a sign in Hialeah High School, and it reads English gratis, which is cool. The problem is that English is spelled with an I instead of an E. So I want to know what's up with the English gratis sign in Hialeah. A mysterious photograph. Was it intentional? Misspelled English? Misspelled Spanish? Whatever it is, it spells trouble. I set my GPS to Hialeah High. Ha llegado a su destino. There it is, glowing like a million flashbulbs, cycling through its announcements. The sign. It's Appreciate Teacher's Week. English gratis is long gone. I hit the streets. Do you remember this sign? Yes, sir, I do remember that. Lazaro Flores. He's visiting his grandparents across the street from the sign. But he'd only seen English gratis in an email with that photo. To put that in the street so everybody can see, that's a disgrace. Dead end. So I go back to Hialeah High. There's a woman waiting for me in the office. Does anybody call you Babs? No. Barbara Saucedo. Heads up the English as a second language program. Free English. 
I've been following this picture, and I'm wondering if you know what's up with this. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> a few months ago, we started getting calls from all over the place that someone took a picture and published it. But what was the sign supposed to say? Babs isn't sure. She tips me off there's a database of every sign ever posted. It's behind locked doors. And to find out what happened, <laughs> you can visit our website, WLRNUnderTheSun.org. And, and I'll give you a quick hint. It's called morphological hybridization. Um, I just want to point out really quickly, in case you didn't notice, that the GPS was in Spanish, so for those of you who didn't, and that was Kenny's idea, and I just thought it was such a great touch in the story. So <laughs> notice, like, details like that really can, can add a lot of color to stories like this. And, and you know, the, the, the GPS in Spanish is one example, the Babs moment, which kills me every time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, these are, these are, you know, beautiful producer touches, but what I love about this segment is the way it connects us directly with our listeners, and the best part of it, they come up with the good ideas for us. So that brings me to the next habit. Start a LeBron James poetry contest. Okay, so LeBron James is coming to Miami. Uh, as many of us probably in the crowd, how many of you guys in the crowd watched his ESPN special, The Decision? For those who are listening to this in posterity, I want you to know that there were two hands up. Uh, maybe we should just skip this. No, okay. Uh, this is definitely not a sports crowd, clearly. Well, anyway, LeBron James is this tall guy. He plays basketball. <laughs> and he was coming to Miami, and this is kind of like a big deal, right? Because he's going to be playing with Wade and Bosch. This is kind of like Alvin Ailey, Balanchine, and uh, Burishnikov on one stage, okay? How many people... Yeah. Is not a, well, he's a choreographer now. He's a latter-day choreographer. All right, let's say it's Merce Cunningham, but you get it, right? Now we're all on the same page here? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so obviously the sports talk stations are going nuts about this. It's on ESPN every night. You know, the Miami Herald is covering it, you know, with an entire special section every other day. It was the talk of the town. It's national news. So how does the WLRN Miami Herald newscast unit cover this historic event in Miami sports history? Well, you know the answer, but I gotta say I spent a long, long time thinking about this. I started thinking about this the day after he announced this in July, knowing that in October we were gonna have the opening game, and how in the world is public radio gonna cover it when most people know Merce Cunningham but not LeBron James? And I think somewhere in the back of the mind, I remembered back to that interview that I had done with Campbell McGrath, the poet, and how great his poetry had sounded when he read it on air. And besides, isn't public radio the poetry of journalism? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's short form. It's attendant to the rhythms and sound of language. Poetry and public radio, to me, is a perfect marriage. So it was a short leap from there to adding LeBron James to the mix. He is poetry in motion, after all. Right, exactly. <laughs> Say it. All right, well, that's exactly how my staff reacted. And also, my news director, Dan Gregg. This is on air. Hi, Chris. Uh, yeah, now, it's Dan. Uh, uh, why, why are you making me do this? Well, it's simple. Uh, you know, we wanted to commemorate 
the arrival of LeBron James in Miami. Now, this is a huge event, and we wanted to give a public radio spin, and that's why we created the LeBron James Poetry Contest, a mixture of the high art of poetry with the low art of b-ball. So that was actually the opening of an interview where we were introducing the contest. And what was nice about it is I was trying to address your reaction uh, with that. Um, how many of you actually had ended up hearing about this LeBron James Poetry Contest? So more people than were basketball fans. It obviously got out there. In fact, it became a viral hit. In one week, we got more than 1,100 poems from 31 states and Canada. The contest was covered by the Huffington Post, by NPR, by the New Yorker. In fact, this drawing right here was accompanied the piece that ran in the New Yorker this week. And best of all, and most importantly of all, it created great, dynamic, fun local radio. We ended up using, uh, we identified, um, so we had a couple promos that ran, a bunch of promos that ran. We had interviews talking about it. Um, my, I, I co-organized it with the, director of a local poetry festival, and each of us read our poems on air. Um, we had disqualified people from WLRN and the Miami Herald from winning, and so we had all these poems that they had written that we read on air to kind of get everybody's juices flowing. Um, it was so much fun, at least for me. Um, it was also a lot of work, <laughs> um, and my whole staff was sort of watching this being like, this is, is a little bit crazy, but I um, really believed in the idea, and so when I say start a poetry contest, uh, what I mean is search for creative ways, search for a creative way to approach a news event that everyone else is covering straight. Come in from the side or zoom out or introduce poetry. That is the role of public radio. And this applies obviously to more than sports stories. It works really well for annual events, for weekend festivals, for anniversaries. Even better if it's a story of national interest because then your local story has a good chance of getting picked up nationally. So remember, when a national story happens in your community, no one else will be thinking about it as much as you are. And after the national media move on, you're still plugging away. That's why we did so well with the LeBron contest. And that's why when we did an hour-long special on the six-month anniversary of the earthquake in Haiti, Seven of our local stories got picked up nationally in one week. So that brings us to the World Cup. To explain this next habit, I'm going to play two pieces of tape. It's the opening day of the World Cup. Mexico is playing the host South Africa, and NPR has a brilliant idea. They send Mandelit Del Barco to a Mexican bar in Los Angeles and Robert Smith to a South African bar in New York City. South Africa, all right. Those high notes are a little bit hard to hit, aren't they? Very <laughs> on. Hey, Robert. It's way too loud over here. Hey, there's Mario Lopez, that teen idol with the incredible dimples. Let's go talk to him. I'm, I'm excited to be here, and I love that, you know, thousands of people came out to support Mexico. The fact that it's six in the morning and all these people are here is awesome. Great story. Great idea. A few days later, the U.S. and England are simultaneously playing a match, and we did a local version of the story with Kenny Malone at a bar with U.S. supporters and Ruth Morris, who is an English citizen at a British pub. 
Ruth, it's pretty rude for you to call in the middle of the national anthem. <laughs> so, Kenny, I have a question for you. Yeah, what's up? Is 10 o'clock too early to drink a Guinness? No, I'm having one, too, right now. I thought you'd be having a Bud Light. You know, I'm Irish-American, so it counts. <laughs> oh, listen to this. This is beautiful. Listen, listen. And that brings us to habit five, steal good ideas. <laughs> you know, I have to be honest here, just cop to it. Uh, I actually stole this idea from T.S. Eliot. I found it on a bookmark. The immature poet imitates, the mature poet plagiarizes. You know, What's amazing about this, it's so powerful, Kenny came to this idea on his own. Uh, he actually stole it from Robert Smith. And here's a line from an email that Robert sent to Kenny. Stealing tricks is always better than J school. And you know, Robert would probably admit that he in fact stole this idea from his colleague in New York, Robert Krolwich. Uh, here's an excerpt from Robert Krolwich's radio manifesto, which you can find on transom.org. I steal with abandon. I steal from friends who tell me stuff. I steal from obscure, at least nobody, uh, at least I hope they're obscure, magazines. I steal from NPR, yeah. Uh, I steal from my mother, who's a great storyteller. So, steal good ideas. Sylvia, will you join me up here? This is Sylvia Maria Gross, who we can thank for this panel. It was her idea to hold it, so thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Sylvia is a producer in Kansas City. She hosts and produces the weekly news magazine Casey Current, and she was the only. And as I said, she was Casey the one. Casey Currents. Casey Currents. We have many an, Currents in Casey. Yes. So Casey Currents with an S. Um, and what's the website? Uh Currents. So can you talk about why? Grab a seat. Uh, can you talk about why you decided uh, to ask the organizer of this conference to do a piece uh, to do a session on local radio? Well, I moved to Kansas City to produce this magazine show, which they were starting up. I was a carpetbagger there, too, and sort of trying to figure out the place and represent the place back to this place. And I know that there are magazine shows out there, but there isn't much of a network or communication about best practices and what other shows are doing. I sort of dug around and stole ideas from a number of shows, but I know that uh, PRPD organized like a talk show handbook for um, talk shows, but it's really geared towards call-in shows. And I think that magazine shows just have a place in a local community that a talk show can't quite reach. We go out, we talk to people that wouldn't necessarily be on the air otherwise, wouldn't necessarily come to the station and be a guest on a call-in show. And I feel like it really expands the local journalism in that community. So I just wanted to have a conversation about how magazine shows work in that way. And I felt like Third Coast is a great place for it because independents can really make magazine shows happen in a local community. But I'm not sure independents are always thinking about local stories and, and how to frame things locally. I think they're often thinking about how to frame things nationally or a particular project that they're working on that they have a passion for, but not necessarily that contributes to the local understanding. Absolutely, and one of our secret aspirations for this session here today is that enough of you guys will get excited about this that you'll start creating great local content. And in fact, we wanna create a network of people who wanna make this kind of radio. And Sylvia is gonna lead that effort, and you wanna give your email? 
uh, sylvia at kcur.org. I'm not sure what leading entails, but I think starting the conversation and just creating that network of shows and maybe expanding that network could do a lot for local journalism. So Sylvia, how much radio do you produce each week? I produce a weekly show, so it's about five to eight segments on each show. I use stories that It's an hour long? Hour long, yeah. And how many people do you have producing that? Uh, one and two halves. I'm full-time and I have a part-time co-host and I have a part-time um, assistant producer. Sylvia obviously is an expert in how to produce good local radio quickly. And so what, what we've asked her to do with us is to come up and give us some of the tips that she has come to over the years about how to make um, fast feature local radio, but that has a deep sense of place. And uh, the first one uh, you're going to talk about is the on-site interview. Yeah, so, I mean, it's great to do feature stories, really in-depth documentaries where you talk to a lot of different people, get a sense of a place, spend several days or several weeks there, but we don't have the time to do that that often. So doing an interview on site, it kind of separates you from the talk show where they're inviting people into the studio. We go out to a place to do the interview there. Sometimes it's a place that has a lot of sound, like a park or a farm or something like that. Sometimes it's a boardroom or, you know, an interview on the top floor of City Hall overlooking the, um, you know, overlooking the, the park. It doesn't necessarily have to have sound, but even if you just say that you're there and describe where you are, it contributes to that sense, the imagination of taking you places. And I always think about Casey Kearns, one of the things we try and do is like every story ideally would take you someplace around the community. So we want to go out there, not bring people into the station. Great. Can you set up this piece of tape? This piece of taste, I think, was um, the right after a round of layoffs at the Kansas City Star, which sort of fits into this whole conversation because with the decline of local journalism, there's a lot of news that's just not being covered. But um, I went down to interview the publisher of the Star and interview a couple of the reporters who had just been laid off at the bar next door to the Star. And, um, but right before I did it, I just decided to do a stand-up outside this pr the printing press, this kind of million dollar printing press they just built in Kansas City. I'm here at the corner of Truman Road and McGee, the Kansas City Star's gleaming new printing plant. It's a green glass building with a kind of copper rim looking across at all the new parts of downtown, the arena and the new H&R Block building and the Power and Light Center. The ironic thing is that this gleaming new building represents an old kind of media, and no one knows how quickly the Kansas City Star and newspapers around the country are going to move away from print entirely. I don't think anyone knew that the ink on paper product would diminish as rapidly as it did. It feels like tumbling off a cliff as opposed to a slow decline. That was really nice. Um, I moved into the bar with that quote, so that was the guy I was talking to in the bar. What, what was so good about that is that you, you didn't just do the stand-up by describing what you were seeing, but you were connecting it to the story. And so when you stand, do a stand-up, how do you prepare it? How, what, what, what did you do? How, could you talk about the process of creating that little bit of tape there? I, th I think I thought of it fairly spontaneously, but um, one thing for local stories, I try and include place names a lot, street corners that people are going to recognize. They're going to really be able to picture that. Um, and I probably jotted down a few notes. Um, I think I tried not to script it completely because I've done that before and then it comes out 
scripted. So, um, so, yeah. so you just jotted a couple points that you wanted to make. Yeah. And how many times did you retake that stand-up? Probably five or six or seven. And which of the takes was that one, the last one? Oh, I don't remember. But the point, the point is that you didn't just try it once yeah. and not get it and then give up. Yeah, and I've done them dozens of times. The first time I tried it, I think I did it like 50 times, and it was two sentences. You know, another approach that um, works really well for me is I will script it out. And then I will take that script and I'll put it, pull it aside and I'll just write some bullet points and then I'll do it. And I think it gets you faster to that take where it actually sounds like you're saying it. Natural. Um, but, you know, this is just an idea that bo is borrowed from TV. I mean, this is the thing that they do beautifully all the time. And believe it or not, um, while, like, there are a few people like Robert Smith who are incredibly good at this at NPR, this is common practice at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, at the CBC, at the BBC. So we're, like, kind of behind the times, I think, a little bit in this. And it's an easy way to make your radio sound different and more placey. Um, I wanted to... Uh, move on to another example of how you can um, localize a story um, easily without it taking a lot of extra time. Um, and this is, um, so, so you have a big breaking news story and you have one in two half people uh, and an hour to produce and you just don't have um, enough uh, resources to go out and cover it like you know you want to like like a feature story so what do we usually do in this situation we call the Kansas City Star who's got fewer and fewer people to take the call and ask for their beat reporter to do an interview with us and we do a host interview with the beat reporter well you have a, a really great way to do a better local story than that and, and one thing is we have a local talk show that talks to the Kansas City Star reporters a lot. So for, for Casey Kearns magazine show, I wanted to talk to maybe some of the alternative voices in the community. And one of the things that I've started doing is talking to people, what's called ethnic media newspapers, the African American newspaper, Latino newspapers, um, Asian American newspapers, and seeing their perspective. And the story, yeah. should I say the story? And this applies just, this applies when you know, this is obviously if the breaking news is in an ethnic community, but there also are community yeah, newspapers. Yeah, not always necessarily. I mean, right. I think it's also getting the different perspectives on the big story of the day. We've done panels and just hearing about, like, the mayor's race, even, you know, from the perspective of these different newspapers. Right, and you ha we have a great clip to show this. Could you set it up? This was after a murder in um, the suburbs of Kansas City where a teenage girl, a 15-year-old, murdered her mother and it was really violent and awful. It's a stabbing and um, there were, it was one of those cases where she had a live journal page, so a lot of people were going to that page and kind of prying into her life and what it was about. There were a lot of talk that dealt with some stereotypes about um, the child of Asian immigrants, and I just wanted to hear it from somebody in that community, and I think a reporter at a, a Chinese-American newspaper, in this case, they're not just representing their community, which is problematic to ask one person to represent their whole community, but they've actually talked to a lot of people to report their story. So I asked him, it turned out he was actually a journalism student at um, Northwestern and was home for the summer when this happened and wrote a series of stories for his father's newspaper. So this was his perspective on the murder. One of the more interesting aspects of the incident was that during that week, uh, actually during that same day, just a couple hours before, 
There was a, a man named Tony Wu, who was, he was a pretty important figure in the Chinese community. He died in a fishing accident, a very strange fishing accident, too. He was just standing on the shore, um, drowned. And then, of course, a week before that, there was a Chinese delivery man who was murdered in KCK by four teenagers. And so you have three unnatural deaths within one week. And, and the kicker is um, August was was ghost month in Chinese tradition. It was, you know, it's the seventh month in the lunar calendar. And actually the day before the Esme incident, the night before, I should say, was ghost festival when supposedly, according to tradition, the, uh, the, all the ghosts and spirits come out from the underworld. So that kind of spooked a lot of people, I think. You know, what, what I love about this piece of tape is that he is both an observer and also a participant in this news event, in this community. And I think what makes it so powerful uh, is that it gives you something that you almost definitely wouldn't have gotten from uh, the KC Star. Definitely wasn't in those accounts. Nobody would think to link those events, but on the minds of people in the community, they were linked. And that festival was also big in the mind of people in the community. So when this piece, when this piece broke, did you already, were you already familiar with this newspaper? No, I just kind of, I think I had seen some links to it on some blogs and just followed up and, and got in touch with... Talk, talk about the process of finding him. Yeah, I, I called and I, and I talked to his dad who, who runs the paper and um, he, yeah, he just got me in touch with the son and um, we ended up actually forming relationship because he started interning at the station and got into radio and, and did a lot of other stuff too. So, um, but, you know, just following links. Also, I just like to pick up newspapers in different places. There's a lot of stuff that's not online. There's, in Kansas City, some Vietnamese newspapers that don't have a website. Sometimes I can't read um, anything but the number, and so just call the number and talk. Yeah. You know, someone help me here. There, there is a national network of ethnic media. It's based out of San Francisco. Can anybody shout out what it's called? New America. New America Media. New America Media. And they have a, thank you, see, using the wisdom of the crowd. Um, New America Media has a, New American Media, thank you, has um, uh, a website where you can um, find out who and uh, who, are, what are the local uh, media outlets in your town and uh, how to contact them. Yeah, there's one in New York, too, a, a kind of network of ethnic media in New York, independent um, Feet in Two Worlds is a radio project, but I think there's also kind of a link between the newspapers, too. So they're, they're out there. You know, these, these networks exist, and we can tap into them, and we can get these voices that end perspectives onto our air, and it's not that hard. In fact, it's probably easier to get in touch with this reporter than it would have been to get someone at the KC Star. Possibly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to open it up to questions. Um, does anybody have any questions? You, you'd mentioned a couple incidents in which you had, I think, stories appear in the Miami Herald, or, and I wanted to understand whether you guys were redoing those stories, like the baby story what, that was done by a Herald reporter. Tell me about that. How have you transferred uh, the uh, story you saw in print, or are you seeing these stories in print and then having them produced in radio? What, what is that? Sure. You know, th 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 that, that is a, a sort of subject for almost like a whole nother panel. We are called the WLRN Miami Herald News, and we are embedded in the Miami Herald's newsroom. We're the only uh, news out, public radio news outfit in the country that has this kind of relationship. 
the, we have dozens of uh, reporters from the Miami Herald producing stories for our air feature, NPR style, style feature stories. We write front page articles for the Miami Herald. Uh, we produce um, videos. We, do, we, we are a, a department within the Miami Herald, but also uh, completely financially independent. Um, and we uh, have basically an editorial partnership, but a really intimate one. Uh, it's funded by listeners. It's the same model that funds all public radio. We, ha we are uh, employees of friends of WLRN. So did that, did the story run in print first? Yeah, it ran in print. We saw it, and then we were kind of, well, Robert's a friend, right? So, so when he was reporting this story, he was recording it along the way. I work for a community radio station in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and I produce a local news magazine show, a daily show I produce one day of the week. And my question is how we, it's, it's actually called In Our Backyard. And so we, we really do mind the local themes and it's been going on for such a long time that it sometimes feels like we do the same story on the same theme every day of the week within every story. So what's your advice on taking that to the next level and, and continuing to expand your coverage of those themes? Well, it's a great question. Look for stories everywhere. I have to say, I think that the local newspaper is the starting point for a lot of just finding out what's going on, getting on every email list, getting on. Um, I, I look a lot at what the ethnic media is covering and the alternative media and just find small angles in a story that, you know, you read the main story and there's one guy mentioned something funny about a interesting... I don't know, vegetable being grown somewhere out. It might be just one sentence in the story, but you follow up on that. But just you know, and, and if the, the second most important piece of advice I can give you today is ask your listeners. Um, we are so used to doing all the hard thinking ourselves, but in fact, our listeners, use the wisdom that our listeners have, they want to contribute their stories. Um, and so what I would do, uh, in addition to what you said, is also uh, regularly state your themes and ask for stories on those themes. And I, I want to point oh boy, out that, that sounded a lot like This American Life. <laughs> uh, sometimes we feel like we're copying like what the local newspaper does. Oh, I don't want to do that. They've covered it plenty. Right. A lot of people don't read their local newspaper. They have no idea what's going on Absolutely. in their own community. And the public radio station is one of the main ways that people are connecting with what's going on. Okay, we have a question. Um, could this be more of a comment than a question? Uh, one of the really great resources for stories that are undiscovered is what's happening with local nonprofit organizations. They are a great center for grassroots activity. I recently came across something at a website that turned into a very moving story that I did on, on my program, Humankind. And I just stumbled upon it and it was a huge story and the person had never been interviewed before, had never spoken to anybody in the media before. It was like a huge story and I just stumbled upon it because I was looking at a nonprofit organization's website. And I think that is a tremendous, rich uh, opportunity for a lot of local communities. Thank you for that. Um, let see a couple more hands. I'm from a city with a station that doesn't have a local magazine yet. We have a live talk show. I just moved to Detroit um, at WDET. And um, so I'm wondering, you guys said, unless I heard you wrong, that you slip your pieces into morning edition and um, all things considered, is that right? I'm wondering um, like why you chose to do that rather than having um, you know, an hour long like you do and the advantages to each model. You know, this is a fantastic question because I got to say, once we sort of got some traction with these pilot episodes, 
we, we changed our model. We started with the idea of producing hour-long uh, weekly shows. Um, I'm talking about Under the Sun, I'm sorry. So, right, there's WLR Miami Herald News, which is a newscast unit, and then Under the Sun, which is kind of a, a regular weekly special, if you will. And what we found is it was too expensive. It was a chicken and egg problem. We knew we needed to be weekly in order to gain an audience and in order to be able to be fundable. But we couldn't uh, get enough money to start up a weekly production um, and still be able to do the kind of storytelling that we wanted to do and still be able to produce it at the quality that we wanted to. I mean, we regularly take six months to produce a single piece. We're doing every week, so these six-month-long processes are happening simultaneously. Um, we left a lot of money, potential money, on the table by making this decision. It was, for us, about um, sort of density uh, and quality of work. Um, every single one of the six people who are part of our core team at Under the Sun have full daytime, full day jobs. So this is sort of in the, in the sort of little spaces in our day and on our weekends and our evenings. But you guys made a different decision. I think it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on this. And, and I was hired to produce a weekly show and so they had a slot for it and that was what it was going to be. But um, I think it's interesting because those pieces that are on Under the Sun, every one of them is really very intensely edited and very polished and we try and do pieces that still take people out to the community, bring multiple voices onto the air, but might be quicker turnarounds, boxes, uh, on-site interviews, um, you know, pieces that maybe you can report in a day and then put together in another day. Working towards, and we try to do these more in-depth pieces maybe every couple of months and, and kind of build up to something. Sometimes I do pieces that you might, I might interview one person, it's a really interesting interview, air it as a two-way, interview somebody else, and then after a couple months it turns into a feature that airs on Morning Edition and may air on the show again with multiple voices. Sometimes the show can be a kind of sketch pad for pieces that are going to come later. I think that it's just different ways yeah. of covering the same thing. You, you know, but I, I want you to know that, like, you know, I've experienced the churn. Uh, when I worked at Marketplace, I was there for five years, I did 851 stories. And um, what I learned from that experience is excise from your life the mid-range feature. So what do I mean by that? There should be only two kinds of stories you do. Spots that you do in a day and features you want to take with you to the grave. And anything in between, don't do it. It's a waste of your time. And, and there's a way to think about this um, that I borrowed uh, from Google. Have any of you guys ever heard of the Google 20%? Yeah, I see some nodding. Google lets every one of its employees spend 20% of their time, one day a week, working on a project that they care about, that they love, that they're passionate about. And out of that came Google News. Out of that came Gmail. Out of that came almost all of the innovation that they have now uh, added to their core search product. And so I like to think of using the Google 20 for your sort of go to the grave type stories and just insist that every week you're spending a chunk of your time working on the stories that you really love and care about. Now, Dan, I, ha I think that that's a fantastic idea and, and as a kind of personal model, but I also think that in order, in thinking about serving your community and serving your community journalistically, there are stories that might not be the be-all, end-all story, but really inform people about what's going on. I mean, we do a lot of politics. We do a, more, a little more, I think, hard news, um, sort of the news of the week. This week we're airing a lot of stories for the midterm election. I have a lot of friends that have no idea what any of the races are 
on Tuesday, and on Monday night they're going to be like, I don't want to vote if I don't know what's happening. And so it's and it's a different mission of the show, but I do think that sometimes stories that are not necessarily the piece that I want to take to the grave still plays a really important role in the city and in my community and is not necessarily something that's being done elsewhere at our station. Yeah. You know, I want to um, move on and we'll have some more time at the end for questions. But what I wanted to do now is um, talk about the experience that I always have when I am sitting uh, where you are right now at one of these conferences and thinking to myself, this is totally impractical. I can't do this. I have the worst boss. I have no time. I'm already exhausted. I'm already working 70 hours a week. I'm about to break up with my girlfriend. You know, this just, this advice, thank you so much. It's just complete trash and this is really annoying and, and sit down and shut up because you're some privileged guy who gets to spend all his time producing radio. And I just wanted to say that I do not know how to answer this critique, right? <laughs> I, like, like you're, you're absolutely right. I'm the asshole. You know, and 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 so so so, Kenny. I don't know how to answer this critique either, because Dan and Alicia are my bosses, and they're the only bosses I've ever had, and and they sort of let us do whatever. Um, so I didn't know what to do either. So I I interviewed a broad range of people in the field. Um, you'll here here's a we put it together as a montage. You'll hear me asking the question at the beginning. It's about four minutes, so bear with it. Okay, so here here's the premise. You have a young public radio producer who's at a local station and he or she wants to do creative things or wants to try new angles on stories, but he or she keeps getting shot down by the editor or the news director, the public radio fuddy-duddy. What advice would you give that reporter? Well, is it legitimate advice to say, go get another job? <laughs> this is Jay Allison. I'm an independent public radio producer for my whole life. You know, if you're working in a place that's absolutely stultifying and crippling of the imagination, it, you might want to leave and become an independent producer. <laughs> and, and then you simply struggle with poverty. But that's my first advice. Well, don't overdo it. I say start sneaking the creative in in other ways. Hello, Third Coast. My name is Rebecca Shear, and I'm a host, producer, reporter, general can-do girl with WAMU 88.5 in Washington, D.C. I say smuggle something ballsy into the writing. Kind of make it like those um, so-called subliminal movie ads you hear about, where a photo of an ice-cold Coke flickers on the screen. Put at least one special touch, one special flourish in your story, and, you know, see how it's received. If no one gives you a slap on the wrist, or better yet, if they tell you they dig it, then on your next story, do it again. And keep doing it. And eventually, your news director will realize He's totally jonesing for an ice-cold Coke. Without even realizing he's doing it, he'll be more open to your ideas and more willing to, to trust you. But you don't want to surprise your editor with a script when we're an hour away from air that really sort of jumps out at them as sort of saying, oh my gosh, this is totally different. I wasn't expecting this. I'm Russell Lewis. I am the Southern Bureau Chief of NPR. Well, the biggest challenge is finding a way to manage up and that is trying to get your editor, your news director, your boss on board before you do it. Because if you can get the buy-in before you get the reporting, if everybody is on board beforehand, and then you turn in that script with an hour to go, there won't be any surprises. And, and, and that's probably, the, probably one of the best ways to sort of go about it. Well, my first piece of advice would be, and this might not be popular, 
uh, you know, consider the fact that your fuddy-duddy news director, editor might be right about this particular technique or issue or thing that you want to try out. That's Scott Finn, news director at WUSF Public Media in Tampa, Florida. And since Scott forgot to send me his recorded ID, I had to get creative, like it or not, Scott. But then, you know, after that, uh, you know, news directors ought to be encouraging you to be creative and to try new things. And if they're not allowing you to do that ever, uh, first thing I would do is I would, on my own, you know, give the news director what he or she wants in the format he or she wants it. And, and then in your own time, take the exact same story and go ahead and do the thing you wanted to do. Try it out. Prototype. My bias is to prototype. I'm John Keefe. I'm the senior executive producer for news here at WNYC. And I, when I say prototype, I don't mean go out and do a full-on mix that took you hours to do. Um, really something that you wouldn't worry about throwing in the trash if it doesn't work out. But if you could give that person three examples of what you're talking about, really, really rough. I think sometimes that can go a long way. And if your public radio station won't take your really good work, maybe you blog that, or maybe you have a podcast, or find some other way to find your audience. <clears throat> this is Jay Ellis. I mean, it's back in the day, there weren't many places to get your work to an audience. There was really only, if you worked in public radio, that was about it. You had your public radio station. You didn't have the infinite distribution paths you have now. So I, I, I don't think, I, I think one thing is don't use that as an excuse. All right. Thanks, Kenny. Um, you know, this is actually good advice for me as well. Uh, you remember the LeBron James poetry contest? Well, here's an email I got from my boss. <laughs> And I have to tell you, I'm quoting from this email, the whole deal is an embarrassment to me, Dan, with all of the issues facing us. And well, he went on from there. Um, the good news is he didn't fire me. I had kind of built up a certain amount of trust with him. And after the contest ended, he wrote this email with a, <laughs> with a poem. And uh, all due respect to my boss, I'm not going to read it because it's not very good. <laughs> all right, so here's the final habit. And this should become your mantra. Local is better. Use your local expertise to cover the national story in your community like no one else can. We tried to do that with the LeBron poems. And another example of that was our coverage of the aftermath of the earthquake uh, and its impact on life in South Florida. We, yeah, I'm sorry, the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti and its impact on life in South Florida. We did an entire episode on this. And we started working on it. Uh, uh, the six-month anniversary episode, the month, three weeks after the, uh, the earthquake hit. This is a piece that Kenny and I uh, worked on together in, in that episode. It's about an extraordinary moment from the medical tents in Haiti two weeks after the quake, and Kenny's going to set it up. We heard about this, this unbelievable moment on the ground in Haiti a few weeks after the earthquake. We heard that there's a videotape of this unbelievable moment. You'll find out what the moment is. That's part of, part of the suspense. And we tracked down the videotape. It took a couple weeks. We found the videotape, and we found four people who were there for this moment. Three doctors, you'll hear their voices, and one physical therapist. It's the female voice you'll hear. And we coupled that with actual sound from on the ground days after the earthquake in Haiti and um, put it together into this. I remember flying over Haiti and 
being amazed because it was actually very cloudy over the island itself and it was getting towards sunset. The way the light hit the clouds was just so beautiful and I can vividly remember the stark contrast between the breaking the cloud cover and going down underneath the clouds and seeing the, uh, the island. I knew it would be frustrating that I would be able to use very little of whatever talent I had, but I knew that what little talent I had was better than what they had. I had been in the Army, and I'd done all kinds of medical triage and mass casualty, and I don't think there was anything that could have prepared any of us for something like this. We landed at night. We arrived into a war zone, soldiers from all different countries. We smell all this airplane fumes. Darkness everywhere except from generator lights around the airport. We took an SUV to the compound to the tent hospital. The tent hospital is basically comprised of four large tents. Like huge carnival tents. Like a small circus tent, but instead of amusement, you have literally cot to cot to cot. Rows and rows of basic cots with patients on. 125 people, and they're all injured. The vast majority of the wounds were crush injuries. Crush injuries to the upper extremity, lower extremity, crush injuries to the pelvis. Open huge holes in the skin, legs, back. Broken femurs, broken tibias, and they couldn't get up. The temperature was about 90 degrees, mosquitoes were everywhere. The smell was all mixed in together. It smelled like rotten flesh. Like dead rats. Smell of massive humans, of urine. Urine, stool. Unchanged bandages. Of wounds. The blood. Of, I would say, dirty wounds. No running water, no toilets, and we only had morphine tablets in our pockets that we would peel off and put in the patient's mouths like hosts. You're feeling and you're hearing souls that have just been cracked and crushed. and It's very heavy. How could you not be completely exhausted? We all felt overwhelmed with worthlessness as physicians and realized that uh, this was a catastrophe that was beyond anything we had ever even imagined. And then this happened. It was probably between, I don't know, 9 or 10? Probably 8.30 or 9 or maybe even 9.30. It's in the evening. I don't know what time it was. I was dressing wounds. I was doing something. I'm outside the tent. I was in the tent. I don't, I'm not sure why I was there. I was treating a pediatric case because we were just so short-staffed. I'd been basically up... 34 out of 36 hours. We had amputations to do. We had debridements, so cleaning out infected wounds. I'm kind of mentally preparing myself to go round on all the patients that were there in the tent hospital. It all started up in the upper right side of where the tent was. The guy just walks in with his guitar, takes this makeshift chair that we have, and he sits down and he just starts to play his guitar. And then you hear people around the guitar beginning to harmonize or sing something. And then each row started to sing. The swell gets louder, louder and louder and louder and louder. And louder. louder and louder. And as I open up the door, sound is triple. Everybody, every Haitian, the whole tent. everybody is singing these words. It stopped everything. It stopped all of us. All the sounds of trauma just went away. It felt like it consumed all of Port-au-Prince. It was that loud.
I remember uh, panning my camera around and I just see this crowd of people singing and dancing in the center of the tent. People are jumping up and down, people with head wounds. People that couldn't get up because of their injuries, they were still singing and clapping along. We had one little boy who, <laughs> he wouldn't get up because the pain was just so debilitating and his mother helped him stand up so he could dance on his one leg. I, to this day, have no idea what those folks were singing. It was obviously a chorus that they knew. It's so hard to describe. Something it. that was not familiar to me. Something that sounds almost religious. Until I heard the word Jesus. Jesus. And we turned to one of the translators and said, what are they singing? He said, they're singing Jesus. Uh, thank you for loving us. It was like a knife hitting us. I mean, from what we had seen, the amputees, the kids, and when they sang that way, and the joy and the happiness that they had, it was a tipping point. Things changed after that. It's extremely humbling to be around a people that, in the worst time of their life, have it in their hearts to give gratitude for what they have left, which is basically dust. I was so brokenhearted myself, just so tired, so sweaty, so fly-ridden, really. And in the process of pulling themselves up, they were pulling the nurses and the doctors up, giving us a, a great sense of, of hope. I decided at that moment that what I had witnessed was just such a beautiful example of human courage that, that I would do anything in my power, in my life, to help Haiti rebuild. And so I quit my job. <laughs> I left my family, which is my immediate family. I have an identical twin, two older brothers and an older sister, nephews, my mother and father. And and so I am living in Haiti. I took a position with Partners in Health to support local Haitians to heal themselves. I think at that moment, they gave us the opportunity to really understand them and their pain and their strength and their belief. I don't think anybody in that room will ever be the same. played that piece for <laughs> we played that piece for uh, an NPR listening session they came down and visited us and after that piece played uh, the senior editor at NPR turned to us and he said we should be doing more creative production like that local is better thank you So we have time for a few questions. Uh, does anyone? Yeah. There was a hand here earlier, too. 
that uh, I asked to hold to the end. Does anyone remember? Okay. Hi, I, my name is Taryn Hall. I'm um, from Richmond, but live in DC now. And I wanted to know how you guys handle stories that are, while beautifully produced, aren't, they just don't go over well with your audience. So how do you handle that and bounce back from that? Sure, the, the question is how do we handle stories that don't work, at least don't work with our audience? And the answer is we move on. Um, you know, we learn from it though. We, we try to understand why the story didn't work. Um, one of the things that probably those of you who are, uh, read everything that Ira Glass has ever said know how often This American Life kills stories. Um, and we don't really do that. You know, we kind of power through and, and complete pieces uh, as best as we can. Um, but Alicia... We did. We did early on, remember? We killed the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, occasionally, but we don't have the budget to, you know, do yeah. it with regularity. You know, the, the truth is, though, we do reject tons and tons of pitches. Um, you know, the, 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 the process before we actually launch someone on a six-month you know, odyssey that these stories often become is a pretty rigorous one. Um, and we work with them very intensively along the way. So, you know, a lot of our stories work pretty well. Um, a lot, every now and again, we kind of hit a home run, but... Um, and every now and then we kind of have a clunker. <laughs> yeah, and, and we get surprised. Like, the They Always Leave story is a great example of one where we didn't expect the kind of reaction we ended up getting. Other questions? Can you be a little bit more clear about what your format is and how much radio you're producing with how many people, how many staffers? Absolutely. Staffers, so we have. That'd be nice. Yeah, <laughs> we, we don't have any staff, as I said. We're all part timers. Um, it is a independent. Uh, we are contracted. Uh, Alicia and I, as I said, opened a bank account. We uh, created a production, production company called ZG Public Media. We own half of everything we produce uh, as a PS. Uh, when Ira Glass started This American Life, he owned half of everything they produce. Um, they pay us a flat rate contract to produce one seg 40 segments a year. Um, these segments are uh, between four and eight minutes long. And that changed from doing periodic hour-long specials. Right. So I saw another question back here. Yeah. Hi. So um, I'm with a national program. And Studio 360. The, Hi, Studio David. 360. And, uh, <laughs> so I'm in the business of looking for and acquiring uh, local arts and culture stories, and Alicia and Sylvia have both filed for us. And I'm curious from your perspectives, what are the kinds of stories that work, like the great local stories that also work beautifully in a national context? Actually, one story that we did, I think in our first episode, was a story I first did for you guys, the Guerre de la Paz story, which was about the artists um, who uh, create all of their sculptures out of discarded clothing. Um, they literally dig through dumpsters outside of thrift stores and actually um, warehouses to get some of their clothing. Right, right. I mean, I was new. I was actually the carpetbagger. I was new. I had no idea where they were taking me, twists and turns. <laughs> it's in the piece that they, you know, I don't know where in Florida we are. Um, somewhere in South Florida, that's all I knew. Um, but there was this moment which aired nationally and which made it an Under the Sun piece um, where they said, there's something about the light in South Florida and the way the light hits the clothes when they're hanging on these chain link fences, which is how they first got the idea to do this. They would see clothes, like discarded clothes, hanging on chain link fences. And the way the light hit those colors and the way the colors looked specifically because of the light and also the way the foliage looks. And they create sculptures based on the, the foliage in South Florida. Um, and that description of their artwork made it an Under the Sun story. And that started as a national story, actually. So. You know, and 
and and just to back to is that like a reasonable answer to your question yeah you know just to, to continue on to that um, I was working at marketplace when we started under the sun and I did a piece for marketplace um, that broke national news it was about what I called foreclosure squatters these were uh, this was a very kind of radical nonprofit in South Florida that actually uh, placed homeless people into foreclosed homes and then invited the police and the banks to kick them out um, and of course uh, in most cases they didn't want to touch it so um, it was this kind of radical point that was being made uh, that the same number of homeless folks uh, there are in Miami-Dade County is the same number of empty foreclosed bank-owned homes um, so I did that story for marketplace and as I said uh, I didn't feel satisfied with it. It felt just like a quick two and a half minute, you know, uh, postcard of this thing. And I wanted to get into some of the really deep stuff that wasn't just about the money. Um, and so I did a version of it for Under the Sun. And um, for me, when I teach uh, this particular piece about the foreclosure squatters and looking at the piece I did for Marketplace and then looking at how I did the same piece with the same tape, for Under the Sun is a nice way of looking at the different things that you can do with local radio. Do you think it's usually two different pieces using similar material? It's, it's, it's got to be a different piece. Not I mean, necessarily, though, I mean, because, yours, but yeah. uh, just to finish the point, yeah. you know, it is, it, I think it has to be a different piece. And um, when I play the two pieces side by side, people inevitably like the local version more. And the reason why is because there's more of an appetite and, and an interest in that local story um, uh, from a local audience. And you can do more with it and you can dig deeper with it. So um, I could never have done that other version, that seven minute version for, uh, for Marketplace. Yeah, there was also the, the example of Poem Depot, which, which originated as an Under the Sun story. It was a story about the Miami Poetry Collective. A piece of that story was about something they do called Poem Depot, um, where they uh, write poetry on demand on the streets on manual typewriters for $2 a pop, um, or more if you want to pay more. And Studio 360 picked up that piece. It was a big feature about the Miami Poetry Collective, but you guys picked up the piece, the Poem Depot piece of it. Um, so and that, 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 that is, is, is more what's happening now, which is we produce local pieces that get picked up nationally and then get re-edited for the national show. You know, your show has a very specific vision and mission um, and, and it needs to be redone, um, but we are able to use the sort of bones of the piece. I saw a couple other hands. Yep. Yeah, I just have a quick question about your audience as a local station. If you have more of a, you said you're tapping into all these resources to find stories, but do you find that the places you go to find stories, then you get to have more of a sense of that that's also your audience, those communities maybe that wouldn't be your typical NPR national public radio listeners, that you have more of a, a reach? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we do is we hold events. And I think that the events and the promotion on, along social media around those events, along with the promotion, we have a, a Facebook group called What's Up With South Florida, which is the main way that we get these ideas. We started this Facebook group before we launched Under the Sun. And by the day of the pilot episode, we had more than 500 members to a regular segment of a show that didn't even exist. <laughs> Um, and this is a way to build in a local audience and to get people who don't really listen to public radio to be contributing. Social media is a, a huge gift um, for us in ways to get our audience involved. But we also hold events. Um, called and an evening under the sun. We call them an evening under the sun at a local bookstore called Books and Books, uh, which is a fantastic setting. They then promote it to all their folks. I mean, we have had my favorite story about this. It, it, you know, it's like if you put it on public radio, they will come. Um, we had uh, uh, an episode where the parking garage 
uh, filled up uh, because of this event. And it's not, it's, it's just because people love public radio. They're members, not subscribers. And that's the advantage we have over newspapers is they're members of the station and they want to come out and, and be a part of it. And we're also um, experimenting now with um, uh, meetups as well to try to just do low production level events that can really uh, inspire our crowd. Any other question? My question for that social, how did, I mean, a lot of the studies that, you know, NPR is doing says that social media outreach is the way to bring in new listeners. So how did you guys build that up on, on Facebook? Like, I mean, just because you put up a Facebook page doesn't mean people will come. They do if you mention it on public radio, but you mentioned you did it before that. How did you do that? Yeah, we're, we're largely word of mouth. Um, when we were starting Under the Sun, one of the things we did was we held two brainstorming events. What did, you know, people who already listen want to hear on, on our air? Um, what did they, and, and also people who don't necessarily listen. We had, I think, two events, and at both events we had 40 people. So we had about, right, about 40. Yeah. So we had about 80 people come and go around the room and just talk about ideas for stories, ideas for segments. Um, so with those 80 people, we already started to create some buzz before we even existed. As it was a sort entity. of our tribe, and we said, tell yeah. 10 of your friends. Yeah. And you can quickly, you know, the power of networks, let them, let them work for you. Any other questions? All right, let's go to the break. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for coming.